This album is dedicated to all brothers and sisters. My men and my women. And yo, it's time. Put our hands together. Hip hop, hip hop. Because we want to talk about y'all is hip hop. The stories of hip-hop, of rap music, are the stories of a million MCs who inside of them the words are coming, the words they need to make sense of the world around them. The words are witty and blunt, abstract and linear, sober and fucked up. And when we decode that torrent of words, by which I mean really listen to them with our minds and our hearts open, we can understand their world better, and ours too. It's the same world. This is Rhymes and Reasons. My name is Rahel Sesmeriam. I am founder and publisher of UrbanCuts.com. I'm a former columnist for the Washington Post, and I'm also a minister and public speaker. I tried to pick songs that I thought reflected the totality of, of who I am. And I wanted three songs that when you put them together, they would tell a lot about who I am. And I chose Where I'm From by Jay-Z in many ways because Jay-Z was perhaps my most important entry point into hip hop. Of course, I'd listened to hip hop prior to Jay-Z. There had been songs I'd heard on the radio. I was familiar with hip hop at that point. It was probably 1996 and I was 15 years old. But it was the fact that this was the first time, Jay-Z being the first time that I listened to hip hop probably religiously. And that song specifically to me captured a lot of what I was seeing and feeling in my hometown of Washington, D.C. When I was growing up there in the 80s and 90s, it was a very different city than the city that we know now. It wasn't the gentrified, Starbucks-friendly utopia that it is now. It was being labeled, which is the murder capital of America. It was just entrenched in the crack epidemic. And I was seeing things that were really, really hard for a young person to see. I'm from a place where the church is the flakiest And niggas been praying to God so long that they atheists The thing about where I'm from is that it's very specific to Marcy But it's universal to poverty It's universal to living in a crime-infested urban area It's universal to living in a community where things happen to one's humanity that should never happen Where I'm from is kind of what anybody would say when they feel that they were probably overexposed as a child You know, that they had a rude awakening into society and culture and humanity because of what they were born into And so that song for me it not only captures my upbringing in D.C., but my roots in the South Bronx and, and being shaped in the South Bronx when I first came here as an immigrant, being born in East Africa and coming here amidst the war between Ethiopia and Eritrea. Most people wouldn't connect Jay-Z's 
where I'm from to Eritrea. But I think what it speaks to is how what you see and the plight that you're destined to live, the people you're destined to experience and meet, the war stories that you experience as a child will inevitably shape you for the rest of your life. I'm from where they cross over and clap boards. Lost Jehovah in place of rap laws. Listen, I'm up the block, round the corner, and down the street. From where the pimps, prostitutes, and the drug laws meet. We make a million off of beats, cause our stories is deep. And fuck tomorrow, long as the night before was sweet. Niggas get lost for weeks in the street. He owns his own story. You know, he's not at all apologetic about where he's from. It's almost like, I didn't create those circumstances. And you may not like me, but you should have created a better world for me to be born into. And that's kind of in many ways how I felt, you know, that I should have had a better world to be born into. And so I'm learning how to be unapologetic about where I'm from. As an adult, when I come into these spaces, you know, I come from an elite educational background. I've been trained in, in seminary. I've worked at mainstream publications. I've traveled all over the world and seen things that most people don't get to see. But at the end of the day, everything I do and every aspect of who I am is shaped by where I'm from. I was born in Eritrea, the youngest of eight. And my memories of Eritrea are very faint because I was so young. I came here weeks before my fifth birthday. But it's interesting what the mind remembers. Most of my memories of back home, you know, were things of the sensory in terms of tastes and smells. Like I remember those things so vividly. And when I went back 19 years later, I almost had those memories validated and confirmed. Certain tastes and ice cream or fruit that I'd remembered from that time, they were real. But I also remember the most tragic aspect, my father passing. I was probably three years old, but remembered that vividly. I remembered curfew, and I didn't fully understand at the time what that was. But I did definitely remember that there was something that required us to be in the house by a certain time. One more time. And, you know, later I realized, well, that's the curfews because we were at war and there were airstrikes and all kinds of things were happening and you had to be home. Come on. with an Ethiopian passport, came here on a six month visa. I was supposed to be a flower girl in my sister's wedding. And, you know, before that six month visa expired, supposed to go back home and live out my reality, you know, in Asmana, Eritrea. But um, the story goes that I told my, my mother and my, my siblings that I didn't want to return to the land with Chika on the ground. And Chika in our native language means dirt. And so I was, you know, in New York City, and you can imagine what it's like coming to America at the age of five and comparing New York City to Asmara. And so for whatever reason, I believe it was God-ordained and destined, I stayed here. And it created an avenue for me to be educated here illegally for a long time because I was undocumented. 
And it wasn't until I was a senior at Sanford University that I became a U.S. citizen. So I'd always kind of been juggling this duality of living in an immigrant background where my family members had a reality completely different than mine. And at the same time, being educated in these very elite institutions and having world-class experiences. I believe God has a sense of humor of all places. (laughs) For my entry point into the United States, it was the South Bronx. Came to the United States in 1986, and that's where my family was living. And I I lived there um, and started school there until we ultimately moved to Washington, D.C. South Bronx as a child for two years, but it's been a part of my entire life. I would go back during the summers to this day. You know, I go back like it's still a second home. When I was a child, seven years old, I don't remember the music as much as I remember the dances. So when we were seven years old, I don't know what we were listening to, but I know we were dancing in such a way that when I look at the pictures, I know it's hip hop. I mean, we were doing the walk, we were doing the snake. Everything that we did, I'm like, we were kids living amidst hip hop. It was almost like this silent soundtrack to my life because the music is not there. I don't remember the music, I remember the dances. Then in 1992, when I would go back during the summers, at that point I was 11 years old, all I remember is the music. And this was back when they had cassette tapes. So you would walk along the Grand Concourse and everybody's trying to sell you the cassette tape. It was also the year that Malcolm X film came out and we'd have a block party where everybody rocked a hat with an X on it, a t-shirt with an X on it. Um, We had these choreographed dances, you know, In Living Color was out, right? So let me just tell you this. My t-shirt on the back of it, it said Fly Girl Rah Rah. Because everybody wanted to be a fly girl in living color. It was like the most unbelievable musical cultural year ever. My family is culturally African. I am culturally African-American. And I essentially began to embody two identities where I would be one person at school and around my friends and a very different person at home. Because my family always told me, you know, we're in America, but we're African. So when I would come home, there was only one kind of music that was being played, our traditional music. My family spoke in our native tongue. You know, when you looked at the images around our house, everything about it was African and East African. You go into my room, you got the centerfolds from Word Up magazine on, you know, the wall. And I was very much a product of black culture. It wasn't easy. It wasn't easy at all because clearly it creates a disconnect between me and my family. I was the only one raised here. I was the only one being educated here. But a lot of the Africans that I grew up around had very, very negative perceptions of black culture. There has always been stereotypes that African communities have had about African-Americans. So as a young kid, you know, I'm, I'm fighting 
to be a part of this culture that wasn't respected by the African community that I was a part of. And that, without a doubt, creates tension because it was me. It was a part of who I was. It was embedded in all, all my friends' identities, my boyfriend's identities. And, and even at that point, growing up in D.C., the culture was a major part of D.C. culture. And so there was this idea that to be immersed in Black culture was to be immersed in the culture. And, you know, I was that good girl doing really well in school. So there was really no space for me to be a part of that culture, but I had to find my own way in it. And that wasn't unique to me or my household. That was the struggle that I think a lot of African families were dealing with, where they wanted their children to benefit from the American dream, but they wanted to preserve an African identity and African culture amidst the benefits of the American dream. There are some things that are planted in our DNA that kind of guide us through life. And, and one of the things for me was my writing skills. I believe that that's something that I was born to be. I was born to be a writer. There's no doubt in my mind. Later on in life, I saw a picture of my father sitting at a desk at a typewriter. And I asked my family members what that was. And they said it was a newsroom. He was a writer. And I didn't know that until... I was in my 20s because my father had died when I was three years old, but he too was a writer. He worked in a newsroom. My first adult job was as a reporter in a newsroom. So my writing is something that I think is in my DNA. I think being a freedom fighter is in my DNA. My brother was a soldier in the war um, starting at the age of 14. My sister was a nurse in the war. All my siblings lived their entire lives fearing militia and having to go into the national service. So all of those were realities that I didn't have to deal with because I was in the US. I didn't have to worry about going into the national service when I turned 18. So the one thing that I had that separated me from all of them was this love of writing and this education. Education was my only way out. And I know we hear that from kids in urban communities, but I knew it. I knew it without a doubt in my mind. So I was obsessed with excelling academically because I knew that there was no way I could afford to live on my own and my family wasn't going to be able to pay for me to go to college. So I studied obsessively. I would stay up all night. And I think my writing was the thing that set me apart where schools were able to say, she's going to bring something here that other people are, are not because there was this proven commitment to using my writing in powerful ways. I didn't think I could get into Stanford and I applied. What was fascinating about Stanford is that they had us take a picture of our most prized possession. And I took a picture of my Ethiopian passport. And I told the story of how that passport became the thing that changed my life and separated my, my destiny from that of my siblings. And had it not been for that passport, I don't know where I would have been. And I think it's that story that was the blessing and the curse. 
wanna write this down. Tell you how I feel right now. I don't wanna take no time to write this down. I wanna tell you how I feel right now. Hey, tomorrow may never come for you or me. Life is not promised. Umi says, it's kind of interesting that I chose Umi says because it's not necessarily one of those songs that I can look back at all these different points in my life and remember listening to. It very much ties to a distinct moment in my life where I was becoming a lot more radicalized, partly because I was a black student at an all white institution. I was at Stanford University. I was living next door to what was called Ujima, the black theme house. And we were a very politicized student body. And a lot of my peers were probably more politicized than me. Most deaf and Talib Kweli came into my life right about that time when I was applying for college. I remember admissions weekend at Vassar College, one of the schools I had applied to, they brought Black Star. I think the first time that I saw Talib and, and most deaf perform together, but the only time that I saw them perform is Black Star. So I'm coming into college, I'm coming more so into a sense of, of political identity. I'd always had it, but never in community. And I think Stanford gave me radical black nationalism amongst peers, which I had never had before. And you needed a soundtrack to that. You needed music to feel the energy that we were having when we would have spoken word events. I was a poet my whole life. And at that point, you express poetry through spoken word. And so we would have these ciphers at Ujima House or what was called the Coho, the coffee house at Stanford. And I would perform with friends, take a Talib Kweli verse and um, remix it with my own lyrics. And so Ubi Says was that song that played in the background of that moment in my life. Like sometimes I don't know what to do with myself. Passion takes over me. Feel like a man going insane. Use my brain, trying to maintain everything. Put my heart and soul into this yard. It captured how we felt at a time in which things were happening outside of the bubble of Stanford that we really couldn't do anything about. And one of the first major incidents was the killing of Amadou Diallo. We were freshmen, 18 years old, ready to take over the world in many ways, just feeling that everything was possible for us, feeling powerful, that we'd made it this far. And to find out that a young black man could be killed like an animal, for reaching for his wallet. And it was that reality check. No matter how far we got, no matter how much we did, that was potential price that we could pay for being black. And Umi Says was one of those songs that offered hope. Probably at a moment when it could have been very easy to feel helpless. Because we marched, we protested, but at the end of the day, wearing the t-shirts with the number of bullets that had gone into his body, wasn't gonna bring him back. And here was this song that said, no matter what happens, no matter how much we can't change, no matter how helpless we feel, 
it's our job to shine our light on the world. And it's not only our job to shine our light on the world, but we have to do it because Umi says do it. And and I remember being like, who's Umi? <laughs> you know, who is this person that he's making this whole entire song about? And looking up Umi and finding out that there was this intergenerational element of it. You know, that that song brought in our mothers and our grandmothers. And it was this call to shine our light on the world, to be radical, to fight, to resist, not only for our sake, because it's what our ancestors did. One of the things that Stanford did for me is it was the first time that I wasn't ashamed to be African. I think growing up in Washington, D.C., kids can be very mean, you know, and I would oftentimes get teased for being African because the only understanding that my black American peers had of Africa was what they saw in the commercials. You would see these UNICEF commercials or whatever it might be. And, and there would be a little Ethiopian kid with flies all over them, hungry. And, and that's what they knew of Africa. Or they would see these images of practically naked people dancing that they perceived as savages. And so there, there were these really hideous images that they'd always consume of African people. And, and they were trying to fit me into one of those boxes. They would say, well, your hair doesn't look like what I see. Your hair is pretty. It's different. You're lighter, you know. And so they couldn't fit me in that box. And so I, I wasn't necessarily proud growing up to be African because I wanted to be black. I wanted to be black American. I didn't have the best upbringing at home. And I think the anger, the animosity, the hurt, the pain that I, I dealt with related to my family I connected that to my Eritrean culture. And so what happens is I go to Stanford and it's the first time that I'm reclaiming my African identity in a way that's empowering. And I'm starting to write about that in poetry and in spoken word performances. And it was it was an amazing moment. And by the time I'd gotten to grad school, it was fully a part of who I was and I was completely comfortable with it. But Stanford was that turning point, without a doubt. The blessing and the curse was me saying that I think all that I have been through in my life the challenges, the tragedies, the difficulties, that's been my curse because I'm, I'm constantly having to fight. You know, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. School didn't come easy. I didn't even speak the language, so English didn't come easy. Everything I've, I've gotten, I've had to fight for. Going to Stanford didn't come easy because I had to get in and figure out how to pay for it. Nothing came easy. So all of that is the curse of it. The blessing is, one, how it all made me so resilient and so strong and so independent, but it also made me relate to things, to people and to environments that I don't think I could have related to in any other way. Like I can hear about the DREAM Act and the experiences of an undocumented worker and 100% agree with that and know what that feels like. I can listen to someone talk about, you know, living in 
section eight and being poor and having nothing and and feeling like you got it so bad compared to everybody else around you. Maybe God doesn't love you. Or if I hear a story about a kid that was shot by police because he was selling drugs on the corner, I can relate to that to that kid on, on the corner because I may have dated him or was best friends with him or he was my brother. The, the blessing in it is that everything that I do today is a result of intimacy with that pain and with that struggle. Like I know it so well. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. We who believe in freedom cannot rest. We who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. Be honey in the rock. <laughs> oh, I'm glad I saved the best for last. <laughs> Sweet honey in the rock. Oh my God. Just even when I hear that, that voice right now, we who believe in freedom cannot rest until it comes. When I hear them saying that and the way that they say it, one, it just makes my spirit feel so good because it's, it's one of those folk songs. I wasn't clearly alive when the 60s was happening. I'm not a child of the civil rights movement. But then there's music that makes you feel like you're right there. And Ella's song, it's a song that takes me back to a movement I wasn't privileged to be a part of. Um, it makes me feel like I'm right there, that I'm there during the 50s and 60s, that I have the feel of what it must have been like to be Ella Baker or Fannie Lou Hamer. So the song for me just captures the spirit of a people that I've only read about, but that inspire me to this day. The song came into my life when I was in grad school. I was in seminary at Yale Divinity School. I'd gone to Yale to basically look at the intersection of liberation and theology. And I was looking at liberation theology in a global Pan-African context, Palestinian and queer and black and hip hop and I was now more radicalized than ever before. If I thought Stanford made me radicalized, Yale made me go crazy. <laughs> Here's the first time in my life that I am in an elite institution where there are absolutely wealthy people around me, millionaires potentially. This is old money. This is skull and bones money. And I'm also walking in the streets of New Haven every day, where that community very much reminds me of the communities I was a part of, South Bronx and DC. And so I'm constantly dealing with that tension between the ivory towers 
and the poverty and violence of New Haven, Connecticut. And I became more angry than ever, in large part because the black students that I was in school with weren't as angry as me. And that pissed me off. At that time, I was co-chairing the Social Justice Committee and the Racial Equality Committee, and I'd be the only black person in the room. And so it was the first time that I'm doing the work of justice, but I'm doing it with white people. Struggling myself don't mean a whole lot. I've come to realize that teaching others to stand and fight is the only way I struggle survive. Oh, oh we who believe in a freedom It was one of the most important experiences of my life to have. I mean, I traveled to Haiti with a white family to do dental ministry. I was having experiences unlike anything I'd ever had before because I was being forced to come out of my comfort zone. Because even though Stanford was predominantly white, I had figured out how to make Stanford feel like an HBCU. Because all my friends were black, all my realities and experiences were black. But I get to yell and the people who were like-minded, who saw the world the way that I did in large part were white. And I had some friends here and there who were black and were just as passionate about justice. But it was a moment in which Jeremiah Wright's quote comes to mind where he said, I can't remember it exactly, but the gist of what he's saying is that, you know, everybody who looks like you is not your kinfolk. And everybody who's your kinfolk may not look like you. And so Ella's song came at a time in which I was doing all kinds of things, including performing in vagina monologues, a bunch of radical feminists for Valentine's Day. And, you know, I would meet radical young white feminists that would talk to me about reproductive justice. Another, you know, friend of mine, young white woman who was really passionate about workers' rights. And they all had kind of their own different entry point. But I think it was the first time that I realized that the kingdom of God and the struggle for justice would have to go beyond my black identity. And I would have to co-labor with people that didn't look like me. And it was one of them, the young woman who was passionate about reproductive justice, who introduced me to Ella's song. very long time before I even knew who Ella was until I looked it up and realized that Ella is Ella Baker. And I knew Sweet Honey in the Rock because I grew up in D.C. I'd done grassroots work and I'd work at a Black-owned newspaper, so there's no way you could be immersed in grassroots Black organizing without knowing who Sweet Honey in the Rock is. But when I found Ella's song, I listened to it. I listened to it all the time. And even now, with Ferguson and with everything that's happened with Trayvon Martin, it is that song that never gets old for me. There's something about it that calms me. The older I get, the better I know that the 
the fact that it's Ella's song, it's one woman's song, it's one freedom fighter's song who happens to be a woman. And it's not Ella Baker, it's Ella. We often, as women, get written out of the history books. Our stories got written out of the Bible. You know, our pain and our our commitment and our work gets written out. Here's this song that refuses to allow us to be written out. You know, this is Ella's song. This is this documents Ella's contribution to the movement through a song. And struggling myself don't need a whole lot. I've come to realize that teaching others to stand up and fight is the only way my struggle survives. I'm a woman who speaks in a voice, and I'm supposed to be heard. At times I can be quite difficult. Faith and liberation are two of the most important things to me. And I was trying to think of songs that intersected faith and liberation. So faith is a hope in the, you know, in the unseen. And the work of justice has often been tied to believing in something not yet seen, the substance of things not seen. And I, I think freedom fighters, whether it was Malcolm, who was a Muslim, or Martin, or whoever it was, they all believed in something that had never been seen. And to me, the intersection of liberation and theology is that hope in a world that we have not yet seen, that we have not yet lived into, but an adamant belief that it is possible, that it is coming, that it is on its way. And biblically, the universe is waiting for it as well. It's not just us, it's not just Ella. But even creation yearns for the return of that world. graduated from Yale, I immediately went back home to D.C. Um, I was brought back by a mentor that I had done community organizing with prior to leaving for Yale, and he brought me back to do juvenile justice work. I was managing 40 nonprofits that were providing services to youth that were wards of the city. It was one of the hardest experiences of my life. I'd always say, you know, my job was like the wire, where literally... If a kid was killed or had killed someone, I would get the phone call on my cell phone. One of the most memorable times, my birthday, I had taken a day off to take a break from it. But the day of my birthday, a kid had murdered someone. And I had spent the whole day, you know, kind of dealing with the mayor's office and city council. And, and I'd have to testify before hearings. And it was terrifying because it was the business of saving lives. <laughs> which is some of the hardest work you could ever do. And I could see for the first time in my life why it felt so impossible. It was just this kind of like Pandora's box of social issues. And it was the first time that I really felt like I had to tackle culture. One of the main ways that their world was being influenced was by culture. 
Why did they devalue life so much? Why did they devalue black life so much? Why did they obsess over materialism? We had a situation where, you know, young boys killed one another over a costume bracelet, just cheap fake jewelry. It leads to a homicide. And after that, it breaks out into a gang war and essentially four kids like massacred over a bracelet. Where are they getting these values from? I originally thought to start a think tank. I was going back and forth about a PhD program. Long story short, I prayed about a global ministry. I asked God to give me a global ministry where I was no longer dealing with this on a person to person, neighborhood to neighborhood basis, but I felt like I could be making a difference on a global scale. And the vision for Urban Cuts came. And it went from being a think tank to this online lifestyle magazine. And the idea behind it was that, that I could use it to address the way people see the world, the way that their values are shaped and the images that they have of, of black people and black culture. And it's connected to the scripture that says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be ye renewed by the transforming of your mind so that you may prove what the good and acceptable will of God is. And so Urban Cusp is really the work of transforming minds. And I had always wanted a youth leadership academy. And so Urban Cusp is my way of kind of creating a virtual leadership academy. It was my way of creating a virtual think tank, all those things in this one space. And now, three and a half years later, I see it. I mean, it was successful from day one, just in terms of the response to it. But three and a half years later, in the aftermath of Michael Brown's killing, you know, Renisha McBride and Trayvon Martin and Troy Davis, I know that we were made for such a time as this. For that crit, let's kill these niggas. Use our skills to help build these killers. Killers, take them at a rate even higher, higher. And take a nigga bitch in the process. Turn the whole thing into a contest. My nigga, fuck this mic. We should be fucking with Mike. Military industrial complex. And we can get rich. Nigga, fuck your love. They ain't listening to us. benefit of not having been a Christian my whole life. And the reason I say it's a benefit is I didn't become a Christian until college, until I was at Stanford. I didn't become a Christian until I was 21 years old. So I've been a non-Christian longer than I, I've been a Christian. I came into my faith as an adult. It was not something that a parent instilled in me. Um, it was not something that I felt forced to do. It was my own kind of transformation experience. I believe that I, I had a calling into the faith by God. 
that it was what they call a Damascus Road experience. It was my own very intimate, personal moment of transformation. And because of that, it's unshakable. I came with questions. I scrutinized the Bible. I think the beauty of that is there's nothing that I can see or be told that's going to change how I feel now. I know who I was before I was a Christian, and I like this for hell a whole lot more. Were not for my faith. I don't know if I would love humanity the way that I do. I don't know if I would have as much hope that it's going to be okay the way that I do. If I didn't have my faith, I would begin to think that I do what I do because I get exposure because of it. I would think that it's about my social media following. I would begin to think that success is the end goal. My faith reminds me that it's part of a higher calling, that it's part of bringing this world closer to beloved community. So because of that, it's just not going anywhere. Because if I let it go, I lose the foundation behind everything that I do. Love yours. Love yours. No such thing. No such thing as a life that's better than yours. No such thing as a life that's better than yours. Love yours. No such thing as a life that's better than yours. No such thing. No such thing. Heart beating fast. When I think about all the songs that I picked, from where I'm from to Umi Says to Ella's song, I've talked a lot about faith. I've talked a lot about justice. But at the heart of all of them is love. It's this love that I have for Black people for my community. I love them because, you know, their suffering hurts me. And every day of my life, I strive to relieve the suffering of my people. And it's a love that I think is shared by God. The, the idea behind Black liberation theology is that God is the God of the oppressed. Meaning that at the end of the day, God sides with the oppressed, the marginalized. It's not a statement of God siding with black people, but it's the fact that God sides with justice. God sides with right amidst systems that do so much wrong. And so in my growing closer to God, in my love of God, I love to see people liberated because that's ultimately what God wants for them. Liberated from their environments. So songs like Where I'm From, is about being liberated from a place like Marcy Project. Not just physically, but psychologically and emotionally. And when I think of a song like Umi Says, it's about the love that our ancestors being enslaved Africans or my ancestors in Eritrea who fought for liberation. It's the love that ancestors have that future generations will experience the freedom that they didn't have. When I think of a song like Ella's song, it's the love that a black woman has for her people, for her man, for her family, to the point that she would do anything to protect them and ensure their well-being. And so at the heart of all of it, faith and justice, there is no greater than love. You ain't never gonna be happy till you love yours. Such thing is a life that's better than yours. Love yours. Such thing is a life that's better than yours. Love yours. Such thing is a life that's better than yours. Love yours. No such thing, no such thing. Hip-hop matters it is what gives voice to what we have been and what we have seen in the past. 
hip hop is what drives the pulse and the energy and the heartbeat and the soul of this generation, our present. And hip hop is important because it's this infinite thing that we constantly have the capacity to shape and recreate and mold to ensure that it looks the way that is authentic to our community intimately and globally in the future. So that's the thing about hip hop, it's timeless. It transcends time. Cuff up along where I'm from, Marcy, son, ain't nothing nice.